This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. I'm Casey Lyons, executive editor at Backpacker, and here's a safety tip from Garmin. Manage the flow of information. Keep someone at home posted about your progress. On the trail, sign registers to create a record of your travels. If you meet someone sketchy, be vague about your plans. Don't give someone info they can use against you. This episode contains adult content and profanity that is not suitable for all listeners. Previously on Out Alive. James Jordan, he was just kind of scaring tons of hikers. Very violent feeling. He's holding this knife like in my direction, saying that I can't stay in the shelter. And the weather outside of the shelter is life-threatening. He threatened to kill us and he told us why we deserved to die and threatened to pour gasoline on the tents and light us up. It sounded like maybe there would be an opportunity an opportunity to leave. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was a worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. It was the middle of the night on May 11, 2019. Appalachian Trail through hikers Kirby Morrill and Ron Sanchez were leaving their campsite in Wythe County, Virginia, where allegedly they and two others, Gina and Jay, had been threatened by another hiker named James Jordan. The four later described Jordan to the FBI as acting disturbed and unstable. Miles from the nearest road, they packed up their gear and, in hopes of shaking Jordan, began to walk. I heard Jordan come out of the woods. There was a brief encounter between him and Gina and Jay, and then running. So Ron and I both had headlamps, and we were walking, I think, side by side. And so we're chatting like, this is insane. Like, I want to get out of here. This is crazy. I can't believe this is happening. And then Jordan, who did not have a headlamp, I I don't know if he found us by our lights or if he was just managed to follow the trail in the dark on his own, but he just came down the trail and next thing we know, he's right in front of us in our headlamp lights. At no point previously in the night had I actually seen him holding a knife, but when he approached us coming down the trail, he was already holding it in his hand. He told us at that point that someone had tried to kill him in the woods. Someone had tried to bash him over the head with a rock, he said. And then he accused Ron of it having been him. And then he attacked Ron and then attacked me. His body collided with mine. We fell backwards and I was fully turtled. I was pinned to the ground. I like to think of myself as being a pretty strong woman and... I think, I think all of us have these scenarios where, oh man, if I get attacked in the woods, this is what I would do. But I was just pinned by a man with a knife. Literally a horror movie. But 
I guess if you're going to get stabbed, I definitely got stabbed the right way because he stabbed me a lot, but it was all in my limbs. Your body puts you into shock and I was chock full of adrenaline. And so when he was beating my head, I honestly had no idea if I was already dead or not. I had no idea. So I held my breath and I held still. And eventually he stopped and he got up. And in the scuffle, I had turned off my headlamp and he did not have one. So he could not see me in the dark. And then after standing over me for what felt like bloody forever, he left and he went back into the woods and he started calling for his dog. There's still a lot we don't know about this night. The four hikers who Jordan allegedly attacked declined to be interviewed in detail about the actual attack since the case is still ongoing. But we do have access to some court documents. The following is an excerpt from the affidavit in support of the U.S. District Court criminal complaint in the United States of America versus James L. Jordan. In this document, Hiker 1 and Hiker 2 are Gina and Jay. Victim 1 is Ron Sanchez, and Victim 2 is Kirby. The following is a description of the attack, read verbatim, from the affidavit. All four hikers decided to pack and leave the campsite due to fear of Jordan. As they tried to leave the campsite, Jordan approached them with a knife. Hiker 1 and Hiker 2 ran, and Jordan gave chase. Jordan returned to the campsite and approached Victim 1 and Victim 2 again and began verbally arguing with Victim 1. Victim 2 watched as Jordan began stabbing Victim 1 in the upper part of the body. Victim 2 watched Victim 1 fall to the ground, at which point she ran. Victim 2 began to tire, at which point Jordan caught up with her. She turned to face Jordan and raised her arms as if to surrender when Jordan began stabbing her and she received multiple stab wounds. Victim 2 fell to the ground and played dead, at which point Jordan left to find his dog. So I was left on the ground with no glasses, no headlamp, nothing. I need my glasses. I am blind as a bat. And I waited until I could hear him some distance away before I moved at all. And I undid my pack. I rolled over, got on my hands and knees. I could feel the blood pouring off of my head. Sat there for a second and I was okay. So then I pushed off the ground and I got up onto my feet. My right arm wasn't functional. My left arm wasn't doing great. And my left leg was clearly not very functional, but I could stand and I could hobble. Kirby understood that she needed to get out of the woods fast. She knew Ron was close by, but had no idea what condition he was in. Turning on her headlamp would only give away her location to Jordan. Her best chance for herself and for Ron was to find a road or some other hikers and call for help. So I figured the best thing I could do was just get out of there as fast as I could and get him the help he needed because I couldn't be that help because I could barely walk myself. There's no way I could have gotten both of us out on one leg. 
And so, in complete darkness, she found the faint imprint of the trail and followed it south. I took a few steps down the trail and immediately realized when I stepped off the trail that I would not make it very far without a light. So I stopped and I started feeling around in the dark, keeping in mind that every time I couldn't hear Jordan in the woods, I would stop and just like lay down. Because if he came back this way, I wanted him to find me dead like he left me. And so I felt around on the ground looking for my headlamp and I just, I couldn't find it. And I, I actually sat back and took three deep breaths and thought about my options. Cause I'm like, the last thing I need to do right now is rush it and screw this up. And so I took my three deep breaths and remembered that I was wearing my fanny pack. And in my fanny pack, along with a variety of necessities that I would always want on my person, if something bad happened, I had my lighter. So I pulled out my lighter and I stood up and I started to try to go down the trail by the light of my lighter. I held it close to the ground and I looked around. I found my glasses first and then I found my headlamp and I turned on the red light, crept as quietly as I could over the next hill. And as soon as I was far enough away that I was sure he couldn't see me or hear me, I turned on my white light and I ran. And I ran as far as I could, as fast as I could, which was not very fast because I was limping pretty hard. The previous afternoon, Kirby had passed two hikers setting up camp a few miles away. Her guess was that if she continued hiking south, she'd eventually reach them, likely asleep in their tent. I had passed those two people earlier in the day before I encountered Jordan the first time, and they were camped out just on the northern side, so the near side of a road. So I'd passed by a road, then I'd passed by those two campers, then I'd gone up over two little mountains, and then I had camped. So I knew I had to get up over those two little mountains and then I'd encounter those campers. And those campers surely would have a cell phone and could call some emergency help. Because at that point I was trying to go as fast as I could because I figured the best bet for Vaughn was for me to get someone in to help him. My thigh was just giving out on every step. And so uphill sucked, downhill was worse though because it was giving out on me. So I had to be careful and kind of crab walk down. As the threat of James Jordan receded further and further behind Kirby, the danger of walking through the woods at night still loomed near. Limping around a bend, Kirby caught the shine of an animal's eyes in the beam of her headlamp, bears. She called out to them and hobbled along. One mile passed, then three, then five. And then I, I did come across this camper's two very nice people and I am incredibly guilty about how I woke them up. That cannot have been pleasant, but they were incredibly helpful and kind and had cell phones, called the authorities and helped me out of the woods the rest of the way to the road. I think it was from where they had camped. It was another mile to that road. So shambled out to the road from there and the woman had gotten out to the road and was on her phone again, I think, at that point. And I don't know, within three, maximum five minutes of reaching that road, a cop car came along. Kirby was loaded into an ambulance and driven to an open space where a helicopter could land. Helicopter took me to the hospital. Police officer met me in the emergency room and took my statement while the uh, surgeon was stapling me up. 
The surgeon is the one who said I had nine stab wounds, so that's the number I keep quoting. Nine stab wounds and then lacerations everywhere. I think it was 50-some staples and then 10 sutures across my face. I kind of had myself absolutely convinced that what was going to happen is they would knock me out and then I'd wake up and everything would be fine. A little after 6.14 a.m. on May 11, 2019, the Wythe County Sheriff Tactical Team entered the campsite where, according to Kirby, the attack began. Officers found James Jordan in the woods and took him into custody. There was blood on his clothing. Ron Sanchez was found and pronounced dead at the location of the attack. This is Ron's father, Dan Duncan. I know that, you know, he, he, he loved life. He loved life and life was taken from him for no reason other than pure evil. And you can put that down definitely because that is a fact. He loved life. He was looking forward to spending time, you know, continue hiking. Uh, Ronnie had good things to offer. He was kind to people. He would help anybody, anybody that was in need. He would. He didn't care who. If you needed help, he was going to help you. The news of the attack and Ron's death shook the thru-hiking community up and down the trail. Hikers banded together to support one another and to remember one of their own. Here's Colin Gooder, owner of Gooder Grove Adventure Hostel in Franklin, North Carolina, where Ron spent a few weeks. I would hope people would come away from it, seeing the grace and the beauty in this man who had served in the military, he was a soldier, he signed up to sacrifice his life if necessary for other people. He ended up in a really bad situation in which he stepped up without any obligation to try and, and succeed in saving other people's lives. And I just hope that you know we we keep honoring him and remembering him for that you know, in the years to come. He was a great shoulder for people to rely on and lean on. I can't emphasize enough how good of a man Ron was. As grief coursed along the Appalachian Trail, so did the shock of such a tragedy for those who had interacted with Jordan over the previous months. The news that he had apparently murdered someone was stunning. I... I had so many regrets. Here again is Odie Norman, who tried to get Jordan off the trail by buying him a bus ticket home. Maybe I should have taken him to an ER. Maybe I should have called the cops. Maybe I shouldn't have done anything at all. But when they said James Jordan had committed murder on the Appalachian Trail, it struck the core of the community. And I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life. Ron Sanchez was a 16-year, 
combat engineer veteran. He had hiked 500 miles. He was strong. He was smart. So a lot of people may say, if this ever happened to me in the woods, I would, I would fight or I would stand my ground. Or Ron Sanchez was probably one of the most physically capable individuals, and I'm sure that the actions of that night were him being that hero that he is. He served our nation. <laughs> And I don't know what happened that night, but I know that I know that he was protecting everyone else there. That's what he would have done. It was unimaginable, the terror of that night. I felt devastated and angry. This is Alex Hill one of the six hikers that reported Jordan to the police after a threatening encounter in Tennessee, where Jordan was initially arrested. A lot of people knew that this guy was dangerous. I was just angry that more people didn't do more to stop it. Relative to walking in a city, trails are safe. So how did something like this happen? Two to three million people visit the Appalachian Trail annually. And with that much foot traffic, there is bound to be a bad element. In the last 50 years, the AT has seen about a dozen murders. But statistically, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy puts the chance of being killed on the trail at one in 20 million far lower than even the safest city on Earth. But there's still that bad element, and in 2019, it was heading northbound. He was known by law enforcement officials to be both mentally ill and violent. So then how was he able to kill? Why was no one able to stop him? Law enforcement on the AT is complicated. The trail crosses 14 states and uncounted towns, counties, national forests, national parks, state parks, and so on, creating a patchwork of law enforcement jurisdictions. Most of the time, hikers can police themselves. But when they can't, it's not always obvious who to call. We spoke to both the Appalachian Trail Conservancy and the National Park Service. As a national scenic trail, the AT falls under the Park Service. And both organizations said they were made aware of Jordan and the disturbances he was causing on the trail around the time he was arrested on April 21st in Tennessee. It's unclear why Jordan was released by Unicoi County in the first place. Sheriff Hensley is quoted in numerous articles saying the hikers who reported Jordan were unwilling to stay off the trail to press charges and testify, which forced the department to release him. But remember Alex Hill, one of those very hikers whom we just heard from? He refutes the sheriff's version of the story. We called the police like as a group and we told the cops like what happened and they said that they were already trying to find him because of like an altercation that happened at a different hostel. One of them was taking notes. I don't know how much he wrote down. Like I gave them my contact information like verbally. I took somebody's contact information and had to call them just to get like an update. 
of what was happening um, because Meg and I didn't really feel comfortable going back on the trail without knowing that he'd been picked up. Um, so we ended up staying at the hostel like for two days. So then we hike out of Irwin and so that's where he's being held in jail at Irwin. I have my phone on me and like I check it every night, the messages and stuff like no, there was no contact from anybody to see whether or not we would have stayed to press charges. Perhaps the most disturbing contradiction of the sheriff's claims comes from Ron Sanchez's father, Dan Duncan. The law enforcement had him, you know, twice, two, three times. They could have taken him. And, and you know what their decision, their reason was the last time? This is, and this is straight from the sheriff of Unicoi County, Tennessee. He, he, these are his words, not mine. He could not afford to spare the manpower it would take to take this person two hours away to a facility to where they could hold him. He couldn't, he couldn't spare two hours one way, four hours total to get this person off the streets and into a, a place where he could be evaluated. We tried to contact Michael Hensley, the Unicoi County Sheriff, to comment on what Alex Hill and Dan Duncan said, but his office did not respond to our request for an interview. On May 13th of 2019, Jordan was read the charges against him. Murder, an assault with the intent to commit murder, an emotion was made to have his competency and sanity evaluated. In July of 2019, Jordan was found incompetent to stand trial and sent to a federal mental health facility for rehabilitation. As of April of 2020, he has not been indicted or entered a plea. We spoke with law expert Stephen Morrison of Georgetown University to try and understand what this means for the future of this case. If the defendant is believed to be incompetent to stand trial at any point in the criminal justice process, the process must immediately stop. In other words, he's not able to understand what's going on legally. Now, I'm not talking about having the knowledge of a lawyer or even a highly educated layperson, but having sort of a basic understanding of what a criminal prosecution is, what a judge is, what a trial is, what a prosecutor is, etc. So one criterion is the defendant has got to be able to understand proceedings and the charges. Second thing, the defendant has got to be able rationally to assist counsel. I don't know of good national data on this, that the vast majority of people who are evaluated are found competent because even though people may have pretty severe cognitive or emotional problems, what we want is to give people their day in court. So the standard for actually finding those two criteria I gave you for competence, the ability to understand what's going on and the ability to rationally assist counsel, I mean, it's pretty easy to be found competent. I just want to make sure that if and when this goes to trial, he gets put away because he's dangerous and he needs to be put away. Despite everything that has happened, all of the survivors of the attack maintain they feel, in general, the trail is a safe place. 
Here's Jay and his wife, Gina, who were camping with Ron and Kirby the night of the attack and escaped to safety. We were definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it just, the stars kind of aligned that way. But I, th- I really think the trail is very, very safe. I feel more at risk in town than on the trail, even after what has happened. I'm more likely to die driving down the highway than I am to die in the woods hiking a trail, realistically. The trek.co has done statistics on this to check how safe the trail is compared to major cities, and the trail is very safe, statistically. If there's anything to be learned from this story, it's that despite the drama, the trail heals. Ron Sanchez, like so many others, turned to the AT to work through his own personal struggles, While he didn't get to finish his journey, Ron's strength and resilience endures in the thru-hiking community. He left behind Kirby, Gina, and Jay, who all planned to return to the Appalachian Trail one day to reclaim the miles and finish what they started. Here's Gina. I refuse. I don't care what happens. We are finishing. We are going to Katahdin. And I think I was just in such shock in the days following. And then finally, when we weren't with like the FBI or the police anymore, I finally had time to kind of like come down from the adrenaline of it all. And so that's when the reality kind of started to hit. The healing process has really not ended. It's just kind of in like a holding pattern. And we really need to get closure to all of this. And Katahdin is where that's going to happen. My first thought in the hospital in the States was like, geez, how long is it going to be before I can get back on the trail? It's been months of physiotherapy. There's no way I could have kept hiking, but I was all the way thinking about my return. Her thru-hike was abruptly over, but Kirby wasn't ready to part ways with the trail just yet. She returned home to rest and heal, but in a few months, some friends of hers would be finishing their hikes atop Mount Katahdin. Kirby made a vow to meet them there. I went down and I climbed Katahdin with them, which was really great. They were really considerate because I didn't have full use of my right hand. Climbing that mountain, there's some parts where it's actually, it's just basically bouldering. And there's some parts where they've kindly put in rebar to help you get a grip. So, made my way up the mountain. Got ever so slightly emotional at the top, but I try not to be too overly sentimental. So, knowing that I was able to climb Katahdin in that state, I was like, sweet, I'm going to be fine to do the trail next year. I don't know, I think it's mostly just frustration because I didn't dream of finishing the entire trail eventually. I dreamed of finishing the entire trail from start to finish, and I didn't get to. I wanted to be a thru-hiker, so that's what I'm gonna do. Come hell or high water. Due to the outbreak of COVID-19, Kirby's plans, along with Gina and Jay's, to thru-hike in 2020 have been put on hold. But she hasn't given up the goal yet. Kirby will dedicate her next thru-hike attempt, whenever it may be, to the memory of Ron Sanchez. I get to try again, and he doesn't. And I just think it's appropriate. I think it's appropriate to dedicate my hike to him and 
I'm not spiritual or religious in any way, but I, I just think it's important to make sure that in a way his hike does get completed. And I think I'm the one to do that. This is our season finale of Out Alive. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, and Zoe Gates. Our story editor and sound designer was Andrew Mayers. Our assistant story editor is Tim Massa. Our script writer was Casey Lyons. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel of Electric Audio Inc. Thank you, Kirby Morrill, Jason and Gina, Alex Hill, Odie Norman, Dan Duncan, Colin Gooder, Andrew Downs, Kurt Spears, Professor Morrison, and the U.S. Attorney's Office for your stories, time, and perspectives. Thank you to our sponsor, Garmin, who made this season possible. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.